The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the executive director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping communities oppose concentrated animal feeding operations, and the multiple negative impacts those operations have on our air, soil, water, public health, quality of life, and so much more. Ms. Duggar's background is based in media and public relations, and prior to joining SRAP, she served as executive director of both the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network and the Indiana Farmers Union. She was the Midwest Outreach Consultant for Earth Justice and a Policy and Communications Consultant for the American Grass-Fed Association. She is an advocate for local and regional food systems, environmental sustainability, humane animal agriculture, and diversified family farming. She currently lives on a small farm in Spencer, Indiana, where she raises goats, alpacas, chickens, and honeybees. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to bring your voice to our listeners. I have been impressed with the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project for many years, and I think that the work that you are doing is important for those of us living in communities where confined or concentrated animal feeding operations have moved in. But before we jump into more about SRAP, what I'd like to know is, How do you define socially responsible agriculture? Well, we at SRAP define socially responsible agriculture as a form of agriculture that can rebuild critically needed topsoils, it can reduce water and air pollution, it can strengthen rural economies instead of extracting wealth and health from rural economies. Socially responsible agriculture can also support human health and food security, all while providing climate resilience. So with socially responsible agriculture, what we always like to tell people is that we all thrive instead of just a few. It seems like in small rural communities, there aren't many options for many farmers. They get involved with contracts. They're considered contract growers for the industrial agriculture system, and I don't know that they are aware of alternatives, if alternatives even exist. Yeah, I would agree with that. I find, and we have Craig Watts, I should also say, he's a former contract grower. He worked for us at SRAP as a field team director. And I often have conversations with him and a couple of our other contract growers that we now have on staff and no longer raising animals for contracts. But they are working with us and they're helping to try to get community members to understand what that system looks like. And oftentimes, Craig will say to community you know, members that we talk to, if he knew then what he knows now, he never would have signed on the bottom line. But unfortunately, the bill of sale that is given to them at the time of signing on that bottom line, they oftentimes are fed this line and this narrative that this is a winning deal here and this is the way you can't fail in agriculture, which is absolutely not true. I think 70% of poultry growers being on contracts 
live in poverty. There's so much within that system that is harmful to those contract growers as well as community members who are living around those types of operations. And I think a lot of farmers just don't know that whenever they sign on that bottom line. Well, how have industrial farms gained a stronghold in rural America? Oh my gosh, that's been a long time coming. <laughs> Since the late 70s, I would say, when uh, Earl Butts, who also was a Hoosier, was Secretary of Agriculture and was pushing for that get big or get out mantra that really took a hold in the 80s in food and agriculture. So I think this has been an ongoing problem. The consolidation of the food and agriculture system has been a long time coming. It isn't a problem that just started overnight. And I believe that policies, subsidies, the way that small meat packing processing plants are inspected versus the large scale meat processing plants, all of these problems have been ongoing and built into our system, our policy for a long time, for decades now. And so this is a problem that we believe, working in the advocacy side of things, that is certainly not going to be solved overnight, certainly not with one aspect, but a whole number of aspects and a whole number of advocates working from various angles to fight the problem. Mm -hmm. It's so difficult for consumers to have a push here because we can buy from small family farms if we have access to a farmer's market, for example. But most consumers get their food and most institutions get their food, like hospitals, schools, for example. They get food from the industrial system. And if I go into any of the local supermarkets in my community, well over 90% of that meat or even dairy products, everything is from the industrial system. I don't know how to break free from that stronghold. It's hard. It's hard work to break free from it. And that's coming from somebody who works within the system and who lives out in the country, who can grow her own food, who can go to farmer's markets as well. But it's difficult to be able to get everything that you need from the farmers that are around you. We advocate all the time for communities feeding communities, not for us trying to feed the world as the industrial agriculture motto would like to talk about it. But we need to feed ourselves and we need to be able to put into practice and to put into policy supportive measures to make sure that we can do that, that we can do it, in, as I mentioned, in a socially responsible way. Right. Well, I know that farmers have been struggling in finding processors, for example. I used to buy from a small farmer who had to drive five hours to get to a processing facility. He was raising organic meat and poultry. And in order to go to a USDA-inspected facility, which fit with his USDA organic certification, he had to drive five hours to get to that processing facility. Do you think things are changing so that there'll be more processing, you know, or government funds moving in that direction to support that kind of smaller scale, more humane agriculture? I would like to be optimistic and think that with the Biden administration and their focus on trying to, to inject some of those funds into building out more competitive markets, that that will happen. <laughs> I think it remains to be seen. However, I do, I have good friends who actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Greg Gunthorpe of Gunthorpe Farms in Indiana. He's a well-spoken, widely celebrated advocate and farmer from Indiana. He has one out of, I think, three or four small processing plants on his farm. There's three or four throughout the United States, I think, that are USDA inspected. His is one of them. And he certainly talks all of the time about the problems that are, that he as a farmer, as someone who has a small processing plant and who very successful 
successfully not only supports his community by keeping, I think, 20-something families throughout the community working on his farm and in his processing plant, but as a small farmer who does contribute to his local economy and his local communities, he is not supported by the way that his plant is inspected, by the subsidies that are out there and the policies that are out there right now that really make his life difficult, even though he is actually one of the more successful farmers that I know, independent farmers that I know, being able to sell his products into Chicago, into Indianapolis, and so many of the larger cities around him. Well, I've been so impressed with the resources that you have on your website, and I'll provide a link to that. It's sraproject.org. There'll be that link in the show notes. But you've got all kinds of information about the harms that are linked to these industrial farms, also known as CAFOs. And I'm assuming that our listening audience might be familiar with them, but just in case they're not, can you describe what a concentrated animal feeding operation is like? Tell me why we should be aware of this and why they're a problem for public health. Absolutely. We believe that with industrial livestock production comes injustice to these communities that are surrounding these operations, to the environment, to people, to animals, and to our planet, ultimately, with our climate change issues that we're facing today. So our consolidated food and agriculture system, it drives independent family farmers off the land. It abuses the food system workers who are working in those operations. It perpetuates social and racial injustices. It pollutes our air and water. It exacerbates, as I mentioned, climate change, and it compromises animal welfare with these operations that are housing sometimes millions of animals in one place. The waste from those millions of animals are oftentimes held in these football field-sized lagoons around the operation. The waste, the manure, and the urine is is pumped out into these manure lagoons. Those oftentimes spills occur. They have leakage into the surrounding soil and into the waterways. There's a lot of different problems. And then if you can imagine living 400 feet away from, say, 80,000 pigs, how that might smell. So there's odor as well to deal with lack of quality of life, et cetera, around these operations. Mm. And if water becomes contaminated, as it often does, say, with nitrates, how does that water supply get cleaned up? Who's overseeing that? We work with government agencies that are supposed to monitor and work with these operations to make sure that they're being regulated and, and that they are cleaning up spills when they do occur. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of capacity in our in our government agencies, and there's not a, sometimes the will to be able to get that work done because there's a lot to do. So we work as much as we can with agencies. We actually have a water rangers program where we teach communities how to monitor their water using EPA standards. And so that really is a program born of creating residents within communities, helping them become scientists to some degree, but helping them do it in a way that is EPA accepted and directed. And so that we can actually help our agencies, our regulatory agencies and our enforcement agencies really do their jobs better and make sure that these corporations and these operations are held accountable for the pollution that they do bring out into these communities. And I don't know how often... Local departments of health are keeping track of illnesses related to living close to CAFOs. Do you know anything about that? I don't know how often they're checking into that. I do know folks at Johns Hopkins and other researchers that are out there that are looking into the health impacts. Um, certainly at the University of Maryland, Toby Wilson talks a lot about the public health impacts of these operations on these communities. 
Unfortunately, these operations are oftentimes cited against communities that don't have a lot of political power. They don't have a lot of economic power to fight those operations coming in, and that's who we're working with. These are communities of color. These are low-income communities. They're rural. They don't have a lot of political power, and they don't honestly know what to do when these operations are coming in because they've never been faced with something like this before, and they think they have no options. They find SRAP online, or they've, they've heard of us somehow, and they come to us, and we offer them that free help to help empower them to fight back and to oppose these operations coming in. And I want to give that toll-free line that you have right on your website, 844-367-7727. I'll provide that in the show notes as well. Again, that's 844-367-7727. And you provide free assistance for communities that are facing this kind of pollution when maybe they think that there's nothing out there to help them. Absolutely. We have a field operations team that works directly in that community support program. That includes technical experts, independent farmers, and rural residents who, like these communities, they have actually faced these operations themselves. So we have folks on staff who do, I made mention of living across the road from 80,000 hawks. We have someone on staff who, in fact, has a farm across the road from 80,000 hawks. So he has to deal with that situation um, in his own backyard. So, you know, our team offers technical and strategic support to help these people, to educate them and to mobilize their communities so that they can navigate those regulatory processes, so they can engage their lawmakers, they can publicize their stories, and ultimately so they can build coalitions to reject those operations coming in and that they can advocate for that socially responsible food future that we talk about. That's fantastic. Sherry, let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the Executive Director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping communities oppose concentrated animal feeding operations and the many negative impacts that they bring to rural communities to impact our health and our quality of life. You know, I think the economics is so interesting about these operations when they come in. You mentioned this earlier where the promise is, yeah, we're going to bring jobs. This is the way you're going to make a living. What happens in reality when farmers sign that contract with an industrial firm? Yeah, I'm not exactly the person that I haven't lived that life, so I don't want to speak too much about that. But I do know in the conversations that I've had with Craig uh, Watts, who's on our staff, as I mentioned, and even with John Eichert, who is also a well-celebrated advocate, and he talks a lot about the economics of industrial agriculture and how it impacts rural communities and depletes the wealth rather than building it. But I do think that contract growers specifically, they are they are kind of locked into these contracts oftentimes with, I don't know if you're familiar with the tournament system that is a, a payment system that pits farmer against farmer and rewards the farmers who raise the chickens the fastest and the, with the most weight. And then it punishes the ones who don't or who aren't able to or who have more chickens who die, et cetera. And oftentimes they're living in so much debt, they're kind of pushed into debt with constant demands for upgrades on their operations. Once they, Craig, I know, mentioned at one time when he had just finally paid off his debt, the corporate entity that he was contracted with showed up on his farm and made new demands on what he needed to do to upgrade. And I've heard that story over and over and over again. 
from contract growers who feel like it's just a treadmill of debt that they're never able to actually get out of. How do they get out of those contracts? Do they lose money? Do they lose money? Do you mean the actual growers? Yes, the farmers who signed on. Let's say they sign on, but they want to get out. Do you provide legal help to help these individuals get out? Yeah, we have actually in the past, we actually, Susie Crutchfield, who works on our staff, that's her story when she talks about how she found out about SRAP. She was facing bankruptcy at the time as a contract grower. SRAP was able to help provide some of the funds to get a lawyer to be able to essentially not lose her property, not lose her farm. And this was a farm that she's had in her family for decades. And so I think we are able to put them in contact with experts that can provide the technical assistance that they need oftentimes. And we're not, we don't have, you know, lawyers on staff to do that, but we certainly know people working out there throughout the United States doing that kind of work. Well, it's great to have that kind of support. I want to bring up a couple of things that you mentioned. One is climate change. And I think we've seen such devastation in rural communities when these huge storms come through. And you've got these huge manure pits that often spill and contaminate waterways. With climate change, it seems like there's growing evidence that we don't want the industrial system in place. Do you see more farmers becoming aware of that connection and the problem that climate change brings to the story? Yeah. When I was working with Indiana Farmers Union, I was certainly more connected to what farmers were talking about and what they were thinking in terms of climate change and that sort of thing and weather patterns. Working with SRAP and doing all the work that we do here is a lot more with community members and less so direct contact with farmers experiencing those issues. But certainly I'm well connected with farming organizations all over the United States. And I do think, obviously, weather used to be predictable. Weather patterns used to be a lot more predictable for farmers. They could actually plan their planting season based on what they felt the weather was going to do. And, and I think that is gone. That is, there's no longer any predictability in our weather. We understand that. And we understand that these dreams are going to occur more and more and more in our weather pattern. That, along with, as we mentioned before, all of the subsidies and all of this, how the system is built right now, none of this helps the farmer, the small independent processor, farmer, or grower, be able to exist and really to build a life and in order to feed their own families and build their own future. It works against them. And so I think farmers realize there's a lot of risk involved with farming. That's why a lot of the younger generations don't want to stick around on the farm because they've seen what their parents have experienced and the struggles that they've had. And until we're able to create policy that supports farmers doing the right thing, that supports you know them rebuilding a soil, that supports these really healthy and sustainable ways of growing and raising food, we're going to struggle with this for a long time. And the, the weather is certainly of urgency that I think is pretty well known to right. everyone at this point. Right. To prepare for this interview, I was listening to an interview that you did with Acres, and you touched on the challenges of industrial ag's influence in Washington, D.C., and I know you have spent a lot of time both at the Indiana State House as well as in Washington, D.C. How do you think we can break that kind of influence from big ag that supports the kinds of policies that uphold the industrial system? Wow, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> There's, I don't know if you're familiar with the term agency capture, but there's a lot of that that's going on where the government agencies are 
essentially revolving doors for corporate entities and higher-ups coming from the corporation and then working within the government itself, oftentimes regulating the very corporations or supposedly regulating the very corporations that they were just working for. So there's a lot of a lot of things happening in Washington, D.C. that don't support a better food and agriculture system. We know that. We're not questioning that. It's just a matter of how we can really start to build relationships with the lawmakers who understand what the issues are or who are eager to learn about what those issues are and how we can really tell through our stories, through our community stories that we work with, through the farmer stories, through everyone who is impacted, and actually consumers as well. I mean, we need all voices to engage on this issue and to understand that if we don't engage on this issue, there are grave, grave consequences to it. How should we engage? What is the best way to do that? Lots of different ways. We're building out a food and farm network. It's a new program at Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. And what it is, is to really try to build movement power. So when you're in working in, the, in this arena, oftentimes we talk about you have two forms of power. You have either power with lots of money to influence those decisions that are made in state houses or, you know, on the federal level, or you can use people power. And so what that looks like is all kinds of different things. That looks like people writing to their letters, writing letters to the editor or opinion pieces they can send to their local newspapers. It looks like people doing interviews with folks like you and doing podcasts and learning how to talk and meet with their legislators at a state level, at a local level, getting involved in some of those different government positions. When I was at Women, Food, and Agriculture Network, we had a place of politics program, which I believe, I hope they still do it. If they don't, I really hope they do. But it really is about getting women interested who know intimately food and agriculture and its importance on their lives, on all aspects of our lives, and getting them into seats in office. I want to ask you about your thoughts on COVID. We saw horrific stories about the meatpacking plants and the workers there who were truly abused, forced to go to work. They were inadequately prepared to work safely with the virus. How do you think COVID has influenced where agriculture might be going? Do you think it was a wake-up call enough to really result in some policy changes? It has. It has some ripple effects. I do think that D.C. is in better agreement about some of the problems within our food system and some of the fragility of the food system, certainly because of COVID. I think while the pandemic was rolling out, so to speak, in the beginning, I do think that we all hoped that it would have a lot more of a longer lasting impact, not only on policy and what we're supporting versus what we're not supporting, but really on the public's memory of what happened and how our grocery store shelves were empty, um, how prices went up on certain products and still continue to go up on certain products, and therefore hurting the pocketbooks of consumers and not, not knowing where their food's coming from, not knowing whether there's going to be food on the shelves, et cetera. So that's a system that isn't working when something like a pandemic can occur and everything shuts down. Yeah. In my own community, what I saw was that the farmers who were at the market could not keep up with demand. So there Absolutely. really was this stronger push towards more regionalized food systems. And then, of course, there were the problems with workers just becoming ill and not being able to work and the injustice of that, really. Absolutely. There's injustice, as I mentioned, built 
throughout all of the industrial agriculture system to essentially everyone who's involved with that except for those corporations profiting from that system. It really showed all of the, the bad spots along the system of what's happening and who's harmed in that system, for sure. And I, I, I agree. We saw a lot of local farmers who were experiencing booms in their business during that time whenever there was a food shortage in our grocery stores. But I think, unfortunately, that didn't last. And what we were talking about earlier about how hard it is to, to secure that food and to get everything that you need from local sources, people go for what's easiest. They go for what they can afford or what's cheapest. I understand all of that, all of those conveniences of life. Life is difficult. So I understand wanting to go to one store to get everything makes sense logistically. But I think when you think about all of the externalized costs of making those purchases and and what that system looks like on your life and on your health and on the future of your family, hopefully I would think that maybe people will rethink some of those choices. You know, it's interesting you brought up the price issue and the way I'm aware of how we've been sold on this industrial model is that, hey, this is how we get cheap protein and nobody wants to pay more. Everybody wants a bargain. But as you mentioned, we are not really aware of all of the costs. They're not reflected at the cash register. But when people are hurting economically, they do want the cheapest price for food So how do you address that issue of cheap food and the industrial model giving us the cheapest way to eat? I think that there's around $25 billion in subsidies going to the industrial food model. Wow. I think if people, and I don't quote, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but I feel like that's what I recall. If people understood that that's taxpayer money paying for a system, $25 $25 billion worth, we, we think, around there, paying for a system that feeds them foods loaded with chemicals, foods that are heavily processed in a system that pollutes our water, that pollutes our air, that potentially gives us lots of different health issues and health problems that takes away quality of life that is actually directly related to the reason why our rural communities are boarded up and why they don't have grocery stores and doctors and dentist offices and and butcher shops and all of the things that used to be in small towns across America. So there's so many impacts, and then you can talk about the, the climate change and the animal welfare and all of those things. But those are all externalized costs to this system that we pay for on the front through our taxes, and normally we pay for on the back through our health care issues that crop up, like when we get cancer or diabetes and lots of other things from it. Right. We just have a minute left. So I just want to give you an opportunity to inform our listeners about anything that I might not have brought forth. Absolutely. Well, I think if there's anyone out there that's facing an incoming industrial agriculture operation, I invite you all to come to our website. It's sraproject.org. There is a helpline, as you mentioned earlier. People can call us and we will jump into action to figure out who they need to talk to what technical experts are out there. If they need legal help, we will connect them to whoever we know that can help them. There's a lot of things that we can do. And if people just want to engage in the food and agriculture system in building a socially responsible food and agriculture system, we do have a food and farm network. We would love to have people coming on board to, to be able to advocate that we could, we're, we're developing a policy toolkit to help people understand how to talk to their lawmakers. We're doing lots of things to create materials so that we can help people engage in building a better food system. That's fantastic. 
We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Sherry Duggar. She is the Executive Director of the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. I will provide a link to that website as well as the toll-free number, which is 844-367-7727. Sherry, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you.